Heavenly Father, it is well with our souls because of what Christ did to bring it to health. And we thank you, Father, for the work that he did. How can we thank you enough? How can we say that enough? And, Father, for an eternity we will be before you saying, Holy, 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 and praise and glory be to the Lord our God and Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we have that eternity awaiting us. And many of us, Father, would just as soon be there now, though we enjoy our lives in many ways, uh, I'm sure, Father, nonetheless, we know that this world cannot hold a candle to what you have prepared for those who love you. And we are anxious, we long to see it, to be in your presence, to be free of our sin, to be in a world that obeys you. Uh, But, Father, in your wisdom, in your providence, you see fit to leave us here for a time. And we know that is so that we might serve you and in our own lives prepare for what we will do for you in the kingdom. So I ask, Lord, that tonight would be one of those moments along the path of preparation, a night in which we can uh, think twice about who we are and what we do and your name and how we might serve you better. And, in fact, Father, if there would be someone in here who doesn't even know you yet, that perhaps tonight would be the start of something new for them. But whichever it is, Father, we pray that the word would have its purpose in our heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go to chapter 11. We're picking up where we left off. This is verse-by-verse fellowship for a reason, because we study the Bible verse-by-verse. In fact, if you don't have a Bible with you tonight, we'd love to make sure you have one. We have ushers who have them, and if you need one, just raise your hand. We can bring you a paper copy if that's what you need tonight, and it'll help you follow in the text. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible of your own and you'd like to keep the one we gave you, you're welcome to it. As we begin in chapter 11, I want to ask a question that's very basic to what we're doing in the text tonight. And that question is, why did Israel reject Jesus? You know, it's a question you take for granted, but it's not easy to answer when you think about it. After all, Jesus offered something to Israel that they had been longing to receive for centuries. And he proved his ability to deliver it with supernatural displays of power. So why didn't they embrace him? Why didn't Israel accept him as their Messiah? Well, the answer to that question is more fundamental and more important than I suspect you may think, because answering it requires both some time and appreciation for some deep things, and it will explain a lot of what's coming in this gospel. To get a better understanding of that, we need to examine two things specifically. First, century Judaism, and secondly, how unbelief corrupts The human heart handicaps us, if you will, from being able to accept the things of God. Now, those are not two questions I intend to answer just tonight. That would take a long time. We will see that develop as we move in the Gospels. But we start tonight, if you will, because in chapter 11, where we are, you find in Matthew's Gospel the beginning of these explanations. That is, back in chapter 10, when Jesus went out with his disciples and he was preparing them for his coming rejection, he trained them. He said, look, you need to go out, preach the kingdom, preach the program of the kingdom, and reach people in Israel in my name. That was chapter 10, and that's really backdrop for what we do now, because in chapter 11, Jesus is turning his attention away from his disciples and toward the fickle crowds that are still following him and have such fleeting emotions, fleeting affections. They're easily manipulated, and he knows all this. And then in chapter 12, he's going to turn his attention to the leaders of Israel, the religious elite, who are opposing him. Now, last week when we ended the lesson at the start of this chapter, you remember we looked at that odd scene in which some of the disciples of John the Baptist had come to Jesus asking him a question. 
John wanted to know a clarification, a point, if you will, on on Jesus' identity. And as I told you last week, rabbis in that day were teaching that Israel would receive not one, but two messiahs, a prophet who dies for Israel, and a Christ, a king, who would rule over the kingdom. And they saw those prophecies as two men, rather than the way it should be understood, of course, which is one man who comes twice. But that's how they understood it. And John assumed then that Jesus was the dying one, the Lamb of God, the prophet. But then he hears Jesus walking around preaching, the kingdom is at hand. That sounds like something a king would say. And so then he sends his emissaries to to John and asks the question, are you the expected one? That is, are you the one we thought was coming next, the Christ? Or is there still yet one to come? And Jesus, as you remember, answered that question by demonstrating out of Isaiah that he fulfills prophecies about both both the early and the late Messiah, if you will, that he is both the dying prophet and eventually the reigning king. So that's how the chapter opened. So he opens with that moment, uh, Matthew does, because John's confusion reflects a growing concern among those in Judea who follow Christ, who believe in him to some degree, and that confusion centers on his identity. Supporters like John, they're, they're confused. Why isn't everybody embracing Jesus' claims? They're asking the question that I opened with tonight. Why are they rejecting their Messiah? That doesn't make any sense. And then you have the religious leaders in particular. They're not just rejecting Jesus, they're resisting him. They're trying to undermine his claims, despite all the supernatural displays that he has given them. And the crowds, well, you know, there are big crowds. There'll still be bigger ones yet before this is over. But the crowds, for the most part, are on the fence. And that's hard to appreciate unless you start to get into the nuances of what we see in the text. Jesus amasses this large following, but when you think of it in percentage terms, it's a relatively small group of people in comparison to the overall population of Israel in that day. It's clearly not the case that the majority of Israel are supporting Jesus. Moreover, and this is really the point for tonight, many of those who were following Jesus were there for reasons unrelated to his claims to being Messiah. There are basically two groups here involved in this chapter and in the next. The religious leaders and the crowds. Each will ultimately play a role in contributing to Jesus' rejection and his death on the cross. In chapters 11 and 12, Matthew begins to show us how each played that part. How the crowds did their bit, how the religious leaders played their role. Chapter 11 is the crowds, chapter 12 is the religious leaders. By the time you get to the end of chapter 12, you remember where we're going to be. We're going to be seeing Jesus formally rejected by the nation, and as a result, he withdraws the offer of the kingdom from Israel in that age, in that generation. Now, last week in verse 6, as we ended, Jesus ended his conversation with John's disciples, saying, the one who is not offended by my claims is the one who will be blessed. Isn't that really what this is all about? His claims and how people respond to his claims? Are you offended by Christ's claims? Because he just drew a line in the sand there, if you didn't notice. He just said that your eternal future, my eternal future, their eternal future back in his day, everyone's eternal future depends on what you believe about Jesus. It's just that simple. Are you offended that he calls himself God? Are you offended that he says he is your judge? Are you offended that he says one day we stand before him and that he has the power to condemn you into hell? Well, If you're offended by that, you will know his justice in the end, the Bible says. Or do you embrace his claims? Do you recognize the truth of it? Do you confess his name? 
And he says, in that case, you will be blessed, which is a way of saying you will be forgiven, he will adopt you into the family of God, and you will become a child of God. And may I add, there is no third option. This chapter tells the story of how the crowd kept looking for a third option. And as a result, that generation of Israel ended up with nothing. John the Baptist's own ministry suffered under similar circumstances. He was a victim of the same fickleness and organized opposition. And that's why, as we go to the text now in verse 7, it's why Jesus pivots off of the moment that he just had with John's disciples and uses it as an opportunity to raise concerns about where the crowd itself stands. Not just with regard to John's ministry, but also with regard to Christ's ministry. And like Jesus... He's also a man who was hounded by Pharisees and Sadducees, as Jesus is as well. And so here's what he has to say first about the crowds, and in future weeks what he will say about those leaders. Verse 7, Matthew writes, As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. I want to pause there. He just used two metaphors, asking the crowd sarcastically, and I hope you hear that in the text. It's a sarcastic statement on Christ's part. He says, what were you expecting when you went out into the wilderness to see John? Now you remember, John the Baptist came some period of time, some months earlier than Jesus' first appearing as uh, in his ministry, in his public ministry. He was out in the wilderness by the River Jordan, and he was calling men and women to repent of their sin and to be baptized in the River Jordan. And crowds had come to him before they came to Christ. They flocked to the river. They flocked to the wilderness to see John. And certainly some of those men and women were moved by the Spirit. They were out there because they felt called and convicted, and they wanted to respond to what God was doing in their life, and they had sincere faith. And we know that to be true, certainly. But I will tell you, For every one of those kind of disciples, there were hundreds, if not more, of unconvinced, uncommitted observers who came out for various reasons. You could imagine that many of them were culturally Jewish, certainly, but we also know Roman soldiers were out there. And among the Jews, there were the religiously curious, there were the orthodox, maybe they were opposed to authority, maybe they were those who were looking for some alternative to the status quo of Pharisaic Judaism. I don't know what they were looking for, but they found something of interest in what John was declaring at the riverside. In today's parlance, you might say that they were ecumenical, unchurched seekers. You know, we have all these ways of describing these people who have some some interest in religion, but they don't even know what they really want or what they believe in. And that's how John attracted crowds in the outset of this. When those people heard that there was this crazy old coot dressed in sackcloth and eating locusts and all this other, out by the river, dunking people in dirty water, telling them to repent, oh, that's good, we got to go, you know, let's pack a lunch and let's go see what this guy's all about. And I'm telling you, that's what they were doing. They were drawn by the spectacle of it, many of them, especially for the chance to watch a rebel like John poking the Pharisees in the eye, calling them brood of vipers. And it's like, oh man, this is going to get good. Let's see what happens next. So they travel out, they hang around. Now there comes a point, as you know, when John's imprisoned. This chapter opened with us knowing that, mentioning that he had already been imprisoned at this point. So at that point, the show's over in the wilderness, and so many of those same folks found their way to Jesus in the Galilee. It's the next thing on the agenda for them. 
And Jesus is speaking to them now. That's why he says, who did you go see when you went into the wilderness? And as he turns to that crowd and rhetorically asks them this, he's basically saying this. What was your interest in John? Why did you go out there? What did you expect to find? He suggests a couple of answers. And they're metaphors, as you can see. He says, first, did you think you'd find a reed blowing in the wind? Now, a reed, for anyone who doesn't know what this looks like, I guess, is, is a tall stiff, hollow grass. It grows by rivers of, you know, all over the world. And if one of these reeds dies out or gets dry, when the wind blows, you know, have you ever taken a Coke bottle and blown over the top of it, right? You know the sound it makes. Well, those hollow reeds will make a kind of low uh, howling noise when wind is blowing through them. All right? That's what Jesus is referring to. In fact, the Greek word that's being used here in the original text for reed comes out of Greek mythology. Uh, the Greeks tell a tale of two young boys, a guy's named Karpos and Kalamos, and these kids were close friends. They spent all the time playing together. And as the tale goes, one day Karpos fell into a river and drowned. And his friend Kalamos was so moved by grief over Karpos's death that he himself turned into a river reed. And to this day, you can hear the mournful song of Kalamos as he mourns for the loss of his friend Karpos anytime the wind is blowing through the reeds. Right? It's a myth. Well, the Greek word for reed is kalamos, and that's where that myth comes from. So what Jesus is doing is drawing upon this Greek myth in making a point to the crowd about their superficial interest in John's ministry. What he's saying is this. He's saying, you treated John sort of as if he were just a reed standing by the Jordan River making mournful noises. And that was the spectacle, right? It fascinated, it mesmerized the crowd to go out there and listen to John. It it, it was drawing their attention, I think somewhat in the same way that you and I slow down to watch a car wreck on the freeway. You know, it was sort of like, yeah, that's not really a pleasant thing, but man, that's interesting. You don't get to see that every day. And that's the way that Jesus is implying they went out to, to look at John. They're not interested in his message. They weren't out there to repent. They were captivated by the scene. It was a novelty. It was an entertainment opportunity. A rabble-rouser, someone railing against the powers that be. You know, and they wanted to go see how that played out. Or, Jesus says, maybe you had a different interest. Maybe your interest, he says, was you were looking for a man dressed in soft clothing. Now, obviously, we know John was not a man dressed in soft clothing. It's irony, obviously. But what Jesus is saying to the crowd, in fact, he points out that you really should only expect to see that in king's palaces. What he's saying to them is, when people talk about being around others who dress that way, and in modern terms, you'd be talking about someone who, who seeks out the ones driving the Rolls Royces and living in the McMansions and having all the jewelry. Why do you seek out someone like that? Well, because... Power and money are connected, and if I can associate with power and money, then I might have some of it too. It's about seeking out the wealth and seeking out the power of the world. So what he's accusing the crowd here of doing is looking to John as if he was a man of some influence or some power or importance or prominence or fame, and then just by association, they wanted to go out and be around a man of soft clothing, so to speak. And you could call these guys, I guess, opportunity seekers. You had the entertainment seekers, and now you have the opportunity seekers. And John, for them, represented a chance to get in tight with this new power player in the Jewish religious culture of the day. You know, who knows where his ministry might go? He's an up-and-comer. Let's go out there and see where this takes off. So whether it was for spectacle or self-interest, Jesus says the crowds that followed John went out there under false pretense. And Jesus is implying 
that they're doing exactly the same thing in his case. That's what he's talking about here. There are some that are in the crowds following Jesus that are there for the spectacle, and there are some that are there hoping to gain something from Jesus. Each had their own agenda. Each had their own expectations. Each was projecting onto Jesus what they thought Jesus could offer them. Right? That is the same kind of translation process that is happening today. I mean, this is not new, right? And it largely follows the same pattern that you see here. That is, in today's world, you can find large buildings, sometimes small, sometimes large, uh, on Sunday mornings, filled with crowds. Uh, And as you see that, if you're not thinking wisely, you assume that the crowd means there's something good there, there's something positive happening, and sometimes that's true. But friends, the question remains, as it did in Jesus' day, why are they there? Why are they there? Many are drawn to Christ in authentic ways. Desires to be disciples, desires to see his name lifted up, desiring to serve him in the kingdom. And we know that's true. But friends, if that's true, then it's also true that there are those, like there were in Jesus' day, who are attracted to the spectacle or they're there for self-interest. Many of the crowds that flock to some of these hyped and overproduced Broadway spectacles that happen to star Jesus in his own weekly you know, show are appealing to the flesh of what people think they need in their experience of religion. Jesus, for them, is an entertainment event. He's a motivational experience. He's a light show and a concert followed by a pep talk. And many of us have probably wandered into churches at some point that look like this. That's someone who's gone out looking for Jesus like a reed blowing in the wind. It's for the noise, it's for the spectacle, it's for the excitement of it. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have those who look to Jesus for self-interest. These are the ones who chase the Jesus genie. And this is what you see going on, unfortunately, in many places. The the felt needs that come, and they're told, if you follow Jesus, it's kind of like rubbing the lamp. At some point, you follow the Christian recipe, you bow, you you do this, you do that, you believe this, you say this, you hocus-pocus, whatever... And as we like to say, bells and smells. And what happens next? Well, at that point, Jesus gives you everything you desire. You can go home and feel good about yourself. All right, Jesus is surrounded in his day by fickle crowds. And in our day, the church is dominated by movements that are turning the Christ-centered story of the Bible into a man-centered story of self-actualization. Whatever we do in remaking God... According to our own expectations, we set ourselves up for disappointment. Not just eternally, certainly so. If you don't believe in Christ, you will be eternally disappointed. But even in the meantime, and even among true believers, because when the spectacle grows old, and it does, I mean, there's only so many lasers and smoke machines that will satisfy. At some point, that stuff just repeats itself, and you've got to look for something new, and we run out of excitement at some point. Or, when that prosperity that you were promised never arrives, and that too will be true, well then, you become cynical, and you're only one step away from blaming God. Because that's where you go with this. You blame God. God didn't do what he was supposed to do, according to the recipe that somebody gave me. But friends, you you and I both know the problem was not God. The problem was, we had false expectations that deceived us into what we thought God would do. Now, let me be clear. Jesus did not leave his place at the right hand of the Father and take on flesh and die on a Roman cross so that you could be entertained on Sundays or Saturdays or any other day of the week. Nor did he do that so that he could be your good luck charm or your genie and give you your best life now or any time prior to the kingdom. That is not the Bible. 
If that's what we want, don't come to church. Go to Las Vegas. That's where you find that. Jesus is the Alpha, the Omega, the Creator of the universe, our Savior, Lord, and Judge of all. And by His grace, we are called out of darkness and into the marvelous light that commands us to follow Him in submission to His will. We live a life set apart from sin. We are fueled by a love for His Word, and we are focused on the glory of Christ among the nations. Those are the expectations of Scripture, and they are not self-affirming. They are Christ-affirming. Now, I like to say that the last thing anyone on earth needs is more self-esteem. That's a fancy word for pride, and it's what got us into the problem we have today in the first place. What we need is more Christ-esteem. We need to love and obey Christ more. And friends, any other view of Jesus than the one I just summarized from Scripture is a false religion. Pure and simple, no different from any other, even if it does happen to come with a veneer of Christianity on it. Now, why am I speaking in these terms? Because Jesus is. In a way, I think it's reassuring to know that the false views of Jesus that dominate in some corners of the church today are not new. They existed even in Jesus' own day. Those who saw him in the flesh were thinking very much the same things that I'm talking about now. And so Jesus turns to the crowds and he begins to tell them, what you missed about John is what you're missing about me. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, again, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way, your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus asks another question, right? It's sort of the same question, but now he's asking it without irony. He's asking it without mocking. He asks them, oh, did you go out because you thought he was a prophet? Well, if so, you're right, he says, but he was a lot more than just a prophet. He was one sent to announce the arrival of the Messiah, That's a whole new level of prophet. And he quotes from Isaiah 40 in verse 10. He's quoting from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 40. And in chapter 40 of Isaiah, the the prophet foretells that there would be somebody like John, and particularly, specifically John, who would come in a day for Israel, and he would be a forerunner. That is, he would be sent by God to alert Israel that their Messiah's arrival was, was soon to happen so that they would prepare their hearts to receive him when he came. So in that sense, yes, John was a prophet because his ministry was was one of talking about things to come. But he also ushers in the ministry of the Messiah, and that makes him a lot more than the prophet. So John's representing the end of Israel's waiting. He's the end of an era. He's the end of an age. He's the beginning of the next age. In fact, Jesus says, and I, I think this is a very compelling statement, he says, there is no one since the dawn of time who is more important than John. I want you to consider that for a moment. Think about, and obviously Jesus himself is accepted in that respect. But among regular human beings, Adam is not more important than John the Baptist. Noah was not more important. Abraham, Jacob, David, even Isaiah, who talked about the man coming, are not more important than John the Baptist. How can that be true? If I asked you to rank the most important people in the Old Testament, would you have picked John the Baptist? No, because he's in the New Testament. But he is an Old Testament... It's a trick question. I almost got... He is, he's an Old Testament prophet in the sense that he comes before the Messiah shows up. But how can it be true? Well, it's because 
as important as those other men are, in fact, all the Old Testament saints are in their own way, the best any of them could do is speak to the promise of the Messiah. John, John ushered in the fulfillment of that promise. There is simply no event in human history more important than the Savior entering the world to save it. That's it. That's the high point of human creation and always will be. Everything before it happened looked forward to it, and everything since it's happened has looked back on it. I still find it one of the greatest ironies of our so-called enlightened and secular world that we still date years around the time of Christ's birth, even if we tried to change the name of it, you know, from B.C. and A.D. to whatever we do now. We didn't move the numbers, did we? Because it is the central moment of human history and always will be whether we agree to it or not, whether we want to believe it or not. So John not only prophesied about that Messiah, he presided over the fulfillment of that prophecy, and no one could be more important than that. And so Jesus adds, he says, you know, as great as John was, the least who entered the kingdom will be greater than he is. Now, how do we reconcile that? Well, what he means here is that as great as John was in his earthly obedience, his earthly role, John was still a sinner. You know, there's a fundamental truth about every human since Adam that you can't get away from. I don't care how nice your grandfather is. I don't care how much you loved your first grade school teacher. They were sinners. As are you, as is everyone, apart from Christ. And some people show it more. Some people live in it more than others. But we all have it. And the one who receives Jesus in his day, as John did, was still a man who needed Jesus because of his sin. But you, as you receive Jesus and eventually by your faith are glorified, when you reach the kingdom, you will be greater than John because in your glory, you will be without sin. You will be 100% obedient. As obedient as John was, even to the death that he experienced in following Christ, you will be more obedient in the kingdom because you will have no sin, the Bible says. You will be in glory. Here's his point. His point is, John was a prophet. He was the most important prophet of all time. But his importance came by association with the Messiah. Right? And his message was one that said, Go from me to the Messiah. So if that is true, and if people truly believe John was a prophet, here's what Jesus is saying to the crowd. He was a prophet, yeah. He was important, yeah. Real important. Why was he so important? Because he was associated with me. That is, with Jesus. And to a crowd that was fickle about John, and equally so about Jesus, what does it matter that they would acknowledge John as a prophet? Whoop-de-doo! You know, you don't get credit with God for, for acknowledging the obvious. Oh, John's a prophet. Yeah, we believe John was a prophet. Well, then why don't you believe what he says? Right? That was the point. If you heed his call to believe in Jesus, well, then Jesus says you'll be more important than even John was. And that in your glory, you will exceed him. But on the other hand, you say he's a prophet and you acknowledge that. You agree with the obvious, but then you don't do anything with what he says. Well, then you're going to have nothing. I mean, people knew John was a prophet. They knew Jesus had some kind of power because he's healing people. It's obvious he's somebody different. But then they go no further than that. They look at it only from a self-interested point of view. They never make the obvious conclusion. He's from God. What he says is from God. I ought to pay attention to that. It's hypocritical. It's self-serving. I mean, if you truly believe somebody possesses the truth, then wouldn't you act in according with what they say? I mean, if you really believe what they're saying is true, aren't you then obligated to act according to that? 
Instead, what were they saying? They were saying John had truth about Jesus, but they had their own truth about Jesus. I mean, they weren't using those words, but that's what they're thinking. John's a prophet, oh yeah, and he said Jesus is an important guy we should follow. And we're here to see if that's true. Wait a minute, you can't have it both ways. That's not how truth works. There is only one truth about anything. Right? Two people cannot have their own truth. That is a nonsensical statement because at best, at best, one has truth and the other holds a lie thinking it's true. That's, that's the, or the other alternative is they're both wrong. But at best, if they have different views on something, only one of them can be right. There is no third option. Jesus is pointing out to the crowds, you want a third option. What you want to know is, John was a prophet. I'm an important person too, sent by God. In the meantime, you want to hold back your skepticism and say, well, I'm not sure who's really, you know, Messiah. (laughs) Let's not get crazy here. I just think you can heal people. (laughs) That is called relativism, and that's an ancient version of it. Relativism is redefining truth to suit evil desires so that we can hold on to our preferred view rather than comport with the truth. Today the world thinks, for example, it's, it's fashionable to invent your own views of God and eternity. And of course, each person's view of God is, is conveniently crafted so that they don't have to drop any of their social views or any of their preferred sins, right? Somehow in their mind, they can craft a God that is okay with the way they are already. Isn't that kind of convenient? The God that I have chosen and imagined for myself has nothing of me except just keep doing what you're doing, Steve. That's how people think. And even inside the church, you will hear people in the church expressing their own views of God's word, of this thing, of what it says, as if the truth of it is a matter of personal opinion. John MacArthur makes a great quote one time about groups that get together in churches and and do a a so-called Bible study, and they do it by reading a verse and then saying to one another, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? He calls that a pooling of ignorance. He says, it doesn't matter what it means to you. He says, it matters what it means even if you were never born. It's truth independent of your opinion. Right? That, that, I love to think about it this way. What if you went into a math class and you took that same attitude? What is, that, what is five plus five? Well, you know what that means to me? You'd be kicked out, right? How is that rational and this is irrational? That makes no sense. So small groups or, or, or even the whole church body will tell itself that we can have multiple people within that group holding to mutually contradictory views of what a text says, and then we're remaining content that it's that way. That's the part that's the problem. It's not a problem that we have different views, necessarily. The problem is we're content with it. It doesn't mean we have to be argumentative. It doesn't mean we have to force people's views to change. It just means we shouldn't be satisfied that we have ignorance among us and we haven't resolved it. That should be a pursuit. That should be an endeavor. That should be a goal. And it may take our whole life. But it shouldn't be contentment with ignorance. In reality, some people know the truth about matters in the Bible, and others don't. And depending on your arrogance, I guess you'll put yourself on one side of that line or the other to some degree. But as Peter says, there is no third option. 2 Peter 1.20, he says, Know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Or in modern language, we could say, there is no truth of Scripture that is a matter of your own opinion. He says, no prophecy was ever made or written by the act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 
So if something in Scripture, or as Peter calls it, prophecy, if it's true and from God, then that would tell us that the meaning of it is also set by God. It's not, it's not subject to our whim. And in Jesus' case, he had crowds who were standing by him, as it were, seeking for a third option. They wanted a way in which they could both respect John and, and to some degree respect Christ, but yet without acknowledging the truth of what they were saying in their case, without having to go that next step and say, okay, fine, you're the Messiah, and in which case I have to obey you. They wanted to draw a line right there. They believed that they could still get to heaven because they were Jewish, or because they followed the law, or because they did whatever they did, even as they rejected the claims of the one who said, no one comes to the Father but through me. That's what postmodernism is about. Postmodernism is rethinking all the things that were previously settled, and in a sense, it's like saying, we're going to make our own way to heaven now because we have a better attitude about what's true than our forefathers did. And we've all heard that meaningless statement, right? There's many roads to heaven. It's, It's totally meaningless, right? And never has Satan crafted a more attractive lie than that. Because you know what it actually says? It says two things. It says we are okay, the way we are, we're okay, and it says God likes us that way. Which is to say, my road gets me to heaven, your road gets you to heaven, even if we're doing opposite things. Believing opposite things. Those two statements, I'm okay and God's okay with me the way I am, could not be further from the truth for any human being on earth. We are not okay apart from Christ, and God detests our sin. I want you to look at what Jesus says to them next. In the last part of our passage for today, in verse 12, he says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to ear, let him hear. Referring to John again, he says, Ever since John, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. Violence. Now, how can God's kingdom suffer violence, and particularly before it's appeared on earth as a place? Well, remember, the concept of the kingdom moves through those four phases, right? Promise, proposal, program, and place. And in the time, he says here, since John. So we, we have a timeline now. Jesus says, in the time since John, the kingdom has been suffering under the hands of violence. All right, well, when, John, where does John fit in that timeline I just described? From promise to proposal to program to place. Well, John sits right at a transition moment in history, right as the proposal is come to the people of Israel out of a promise, and it's soon going to become a program. So Jesus is talking about violence being done to the proposal that first came as a function of John's ministry. John introduced the groom, and then the groom brought the proposal to Israel. And Jesus is saying, since that moment... Since the proposal has been floating around in the Galilee and beyond, people have been doing violence to it. That message that John preached, the message Jesus offered, the proposal, it's centered on a person. And that's how you have to understand what he means by violence. Said another way, entering the kingdom is not, and for anyone who don't know what I mean when I say kingdom, maybe you're visiting or maybe you haven't been here very long. When we say kingdom and the way it's meant here, we would use a term today, heaven. But The kingdom is a very specific concept, but let's just say heaven for now. Entering heaven is not about accepting an idea. It's not about a journey. (laughs) It's not about performing works of any kind. It's not about how religious you become. It's not about going to church. It's not about praying. It's not about doing anything at all physically. It's about a person. 
It's about receiving, accepting, believing a person, Jesus. The kingdom proposal was Jesus walking around on earth, offering, as it were, a marriage proposal, first to Israel, then later to the rest of the world. And that marriage proposal said, have me and you can have the kingdom. That proposal, Jesus says, has been suffering under violence. What he means is this. Those who came to John, then later to Jesus, to hear that message, didn't like it so much. They tried to change it. They tried to make it something they preferred. They were, in effect, taking it by force in the sense that they were pushing back against what God was offering. And in its place, they were contending with it and trying to make it something different. In reality, what they were trying to do is change the testimony of the Word of God. That's what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, what you're, what you're hearing from me and what you heard from John is what all the prophets and the law have been speaking about up till John. Just so you know, the, the phrase law and prophets, that's a Jewish way of saying the Bible. Or, or as we might say today, the Old Testament. So he just said, Jesus just said, the entire Old Testament has been foretelling the very same things that John the Baptist declares and that I, Jesus, say. Which means that if you oppose John's message, if you oppose Jesus' identity, you're no different than those who came before you and opposed the prophets who wrote the Bible. So we're not talking about a, a clash of interpretation here. We're talking about two kinds of hearts. We're talking about those who would hear the word of God and those who don't. We're talking about the children of God and those who are not. Those who receive the grace of Christ as Messiah and those who haven't. Or as we might say today, believers, unbelievers. That's it. There is no third option. He's looking at his audience and he's saying, if you accepted the word of God, you would have accepted John's testimony. If you accepted John's testimony, you would be accepting mine. If you would accept me, you would have the kingdom. There's no third option. Verse 14, the Lord says, if you're willing to accept this truth, if you have ears to hear, as he puts it next, he says, then for you, John is like Elijah. Now this is an important statement, but it's veiled and I have to explain it. It ties back to something we learned last week. Remember last week I said the rabbis were teaching there would be three visitors to Israel in the age right before the kingdom. And two of them would be these two messiahs. We already talked about that. But remember the first one? The first one was going to be Elijah. Because Malachi, in chapter 4, tells Israel that before the kingdom comes and before the king sets it up and reigns, they should expect to see the return of Elijah. And so the rabbis knew they should be looking for this prophet to return right before the end of the age. And we know that the end of the age is the moment of Christ's second coming. We know that from scripture. That when we're talking about the kingdom being a physical place on this earth, Christ ruling it physically on earth, that is a yet to come event. That is coming at the end of this age when Christ returns. It begins a new age of the kingdom. Right before that happens, Elijah is going to return. Right? We know that's from the Bible. So Elijah appears shortly before the second coming. Therefore, why is Jesus saying that for those who accept the truth of John's testimony in Jesus' day, then John becomes Elijah for them? What does he mean by that? We know that John wasn't actually Elijah. In fact, John himself, when he was asked if he was Elijah in John chapter 1, he specifically says, no, I am not that coming Elijah that you're waiting for. So what does Jesus mean? Well, what he's doing is he's using the rabbi's teaching of of two messiahs in a way. Because if you think about Jesus coming twice as if he were like two messiahs, there's a forerunner before each of them. John the Baptist is the forerunner for the first coming of Christ. Elijah is the forerunner 
for the second coming of Christ. Which of those comings brings you the kingdom in its physical form? Well, the second. So what he's saying to the crowd is, if you're willing to accept John's testimony concerning me, you can essentially have the kingdom that Elijah will be coming to tell you about now. You'll have it by faith. You'll have it in the sense of the promise will be yours now, and in the day to come you'll see it in its physical form. But you don't have to wait for Elijah's coming. John can be your Elijah right now, if you would receive his message concerning me. You see, that was the problem. They wanted a Christ. They weren't ready for the prophet. They wanted a king. They didn't care much for a suffering, dying Messiah. And John was there to say, this is the one you want. And they're saying, doesn't look like it. Must be another one. So why was Israel willing to reject their king? Because they preferred a different path into the kingdom. They wanted a path that allowed them to remain unrepentant. They wanted a path, a recipe, that didn't require submission to God's word. They wanted a heaven that they could take by force rather than by accepting it in humility as God offered it in the form of John and Jesus. And John said, Jesus is the Messiah, follow him. They said, not the guy I was expecting. Jesus said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And they said, no, we're Jewish. We're going to go to the Father anyway, but thanks for the offer. Jesus says, there's no third option. Friends, tonight all I need to know from you, and all you really need to ask for yourself is, are you believing in the first option, that is in Christ, a second option, which is in some other way to heaven, but there's no third option. There's no other way. I mean, it's not as though you have a solution that stands equal with the one God has offered in Christ. All you have is Christ or nothing. And for many of us, what nothing feels like is simply life on earth with no concerns for what comes next. For others, we have a religious mindset. We're into religion. We're into spiritual things. But we don't think of them too deeply, and they simply come alongside our life. They are a complement to our life. What the Bible has to say, though, is that this life has a definite end, and then the future takes hold at that point. And if you have not come to know Christ as your Savior, coming into that moment, well then, friends, there's no third option. I would ask you tonight to consider where you stand by Christ. Do you believe in what he said about himself? And if you do, well, hallelujah, and I'm glad you're here. And, of course, we're studying through Scripture so that we can serve him better as his disciples. But if you do not know him... Don't walk out this door and wait for another opportunity because there's maybe no other opportunity. We don't know what your future holds. We don't know what tomorrow looks like. Today would be the day you should accept Christ as Savior. If you need to have that conversation with me or anyone else, you just come straight up here after this service. We're about to end. And as we end, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about what you believe about Christ. And I'd actually like to talk to you more about what the Scriptures say about Christ. And for those of us who do know Him, let's pray together as we finish in this service, not just for our own obedience, for our knowledge of Him, our true understanding of Him by His Scripture, but I ask also that you would pray for those in this room who may not know Him and may be thinking about Him now. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we lift our hearts up to You in humility and submission to Your Word and to the truth of what we've heard tonight. We ask, Lord, that You would be speaking to each one of our hearts. For many of us, Father, as Your child of God by faith, uh, we know You and You know us, and so, Lord, our prayer is that You would Affirm in our hearts the certainty of what we know in faith and call us to follow you in a greater and more obedient way. Father, we know there may be some around us for whom the knowledge of this is is so new they don't know quite what to do with it yet. Or perhaps, Father, they're wrestling with it. Perhaps they've heard this many times. And yet for some reason tonight, Father, they're thinking about it in a new way. We ask, Lord, that by your Spirit,
you would show them that in the word of God, you have declared your son to be the one and only perfect sacrifice sent for the sake of our sin, taking the punishment that we deserve in our place. Convince them, Father, as only you can, that if they put their trust in that promise and in that provision, they will be saved. And that no works, no human effort, no sacrifice of our own strength is sufficient to erase even one sin in our life. But, Father, by the Son's power alone on that cross, you erase them all. And that if we trust in that, we may have eternal life. We pray, Father, that that would be the heart of someone in this room and that you would touch it now. And if you do, Father, we pray we know that so we may affirm it and we may pray with them, encouraging them to follow you in a new life. Thank you, Father, for a church that is not seeking Christ, for the spectacle or for the profit of what we might receive now. But rather, Father, we seek only to serve him in his glory and in his power, declaring his truth from Scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.